This podcast is brought to you by the upcoming Bioceuticals Seminar Series, The New Science of Detoxification with Dr. Chris Shade. Dr. Shade is a globally recognised expert on toxic burden and targeted liposomal delivery systems. He has lectured and trained doctors in the US and internationally on the subject of mercury, heavy metals and the human detoxification system. In this one-day workshop, Dr. Shade will share his deep understanding on how to restore, manage and augment all three phases of detoxification with profound implications for health. At the end of the day, you will have a full understanding of how to provide a personalised, holistic detoxification program that moves away from the hit-and-miss shotgun approach practitioners may have used in the past. For more information visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me on the line today is Dr Sarah Lance, who's a health writer, researcher, author, nutritional consultant and all-round chemical conscious nut. (laughs) Sarah's passion for understanding the healing properties of whole foods, plants, herbs, good fats and oils, greens, comes from growing up on farms in country New South Wales. And I will specify orange New South Wales because I'm from there too. From rural upbringing, Sarah went urban and gained tertiary qualifications in public and population health, nutrition, some toxicology, and when went on to complete her PhD from the University of Melbourne Australian Youth Research Centre. In recent years, Sarah has worked as research fellow and lecturer at a number of prestigious universities across Australia, including the University of Queensland and QUT, Queensland University of Technology. Sarah is now the director of Roots in Nature Proprietary Limited and Bucci Kombucha. She currently runs workshops across Australia engaging people in issues of toxicity of the body, gut health, fermentation and building body resiliency. Her first book, Chemical Free Kids, Raising Healthy Children in a Toxic World, is a best-selling publication and has now gone into its third reprint. And she's currently writing her second book, Dr Lance currently lives on acreage on the outskirts of Brisbane with her two girls and brood of eccentric chickens. Welcome, Sarah. How are you? Thank you so much. (laughs) Great, great. I've got to say, I was so pleased to learn that you were from Orange, New South Wales, where I did some of my growing up. Yes. Lovely Does everyone come from there, all the good people? <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I often meet people who come from Orange, you yeah. know, or have spent some time in Orange. But I, I, I actually think that those rural upbringings where I spent most of my time on orchards and in farming kind of communities on land kind of then went on. I mean, I couldn't wait to get to the city to do all the urban kind of things, don't yeah. get me wrong, but it certainly played such a critical role in what I do today, purely based on, you know, those, you know, those origins or those roots of where we actually come from where you know food was all around us and you know for, for me there was just organics and foods and veggie patches and animals like I knew everything around me you know that was going into my stomach and around me the, the health of, of the air and so forth where um, I think that played a really critical role in, in what I do today in terms of health and wellness. I think I'd have to agree with you there it, it seems I don't know whether it was just 
my upbringing coming from a farming background or whether it was living in a country town, but we all knew where food came from. And nowadays, people mm. just don't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember uh, going to the butcher and you'd have a whole carcass there mm. and you'd talk to the butcher and not only would he know where that beast came from, um, he knew kind of how it was raised, who raised it, how old it is, mm. and, you know, all the gossip around town. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> and, and you could actually say, I want that cut of meat. Yeah. You know, and he used to cut it off. You know, you knew exactly where your food was actually specifically coming from, which I love, and I still love that today. Yes, absolutely. I think we're, we're losing something of that, you know, with the the way that we've distanced ourselves going into a supermarket and buying, you know, the, the raw packaged item. We've yep. got no idea, but even vegetables. People don't know what yep. w- what a vegetable is fr- from, for instance. Yeah. You know? And in most of my workshops today, I'll actually ask people, you see, for me, food, in terms of building resiliency, food is the most important thing we can do every day. It's, it's one thing as humans we have to do. You know, I can't think of a more important thing to do. It's on that kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like food is yep. kind of number one, you know. Yep. And yet, I ask people, I say, you know, does anyone know where their food yes. comes from, like specifically the origins? And most people don't. Most people will know more about their children's teachers or, you know, their mechanics or their accountants than mm. what they do about the food that they're putting in their body and that they have to put in their body every single day. And that's really alarming, you know. And I kind of think for me that's one of the first steps we should be doing in terms of building our own resiliency in those of our communities and families as well. Here, here. Now, you're mm. a nutritionist, a lecturer at, at um, UQ in public health, yep. founder of Bucci Kombucha, beverages and an author of the book Chemical Free Kids. But take us first through your background and how you came to accomplish all of these things because it's a pretty long list. I don't know. I've got an eclectic kind of background. (laughs) I I think it does come from a passion for being on farms. And of course, you know, as a young woman, you know, I, I went urban and went, got qualifications at, you know, universities and, in, in, you know, in cities and so forth. Um, but, you know, things such as my interest in health was always there. You know, it was, you know, I went, you know, public health, population health, nutrition, and then I got really interested. So one of the things that did happen when I was in farming New South Wales is that at one point when I was 15, 14, 15, my brothers and I got glandular fever and it was something that we couldn't kick and my parents were cluey enough to get blood tests for us and they found they found high uh, amounts of uh, pesticide residues in our blood um and that was like my first and you know of, of course at that time we still didn't know enough about it in terms of the direct correlations or what it possibly could do to your body and so forth but I think it always stuck in my head as something that I, I was interested in looking at you know because it was such a cluey thing that my parents did at such a young young age is to kind of go well what are these pesticides you know and pesticides whilst they weren't often on my farm I was frequently on farms where I used to run behind the pesticide spray tractors it was quite common for me wow. to pick up an apple off a tree and it to have the white residue of pesticide and eat that, you know, that, that residue. It just wasn't something that was, you know, spoken about in our community, you know, or, or, or worried about until I kind of got a little bit older and started to kind of, you know, kind of join the dots and look at my own health and how I was brought up and where that went from. And so that was my interest in, in I guess, in terms of looking at chemical exposure or chemical exposure in the body. You know, it was always about pesticides and food first and foremost. Well, indeed, your research into toxins found some very interesting things in infants 
um, yes. which to me is very concerning. I've I've read previously that they've found dildren in breast milk in mothers in yep. Perth, and that was banned in 1974. Yep. Mm. Yeah. I mean, of course, Silent Spring was that, that first book that came out with Absolutely. Rachel Carson, which was able to kind of show biomagnification and bioaccumulation. So something that we've introduced, for example, as you said, in the environment 20, 30, 40 years ago is still showing up today, was a really classic example of going, well, what are we, what are we doing? Like what, what, what's stuck, you know, sticking around and what's particularly sticking around in our fat cells and in, in that sort of, you know, an instant. Mm. Uh, and we started to change the laws, obviously, around these kind of persistent chemicals. And yet having said that, we've still got more chemicals on the environment in our, in our environment than any other time in history. Um, so yeah, most of my research was initially just starting to look at what kind of chemicals are in new, newborn babies and working in projects where we could actually examine what's happening in newborn babies. And unfortunately, most of the research we've done, well, there hasn't been a lot done in, in Australia and we haven't still been able to find the funding for that yet. So most of it's actually been done in the United States. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're the first studies that kind of came out even 10 years ago showing that, you know, over 200 chemicals. And these are just tip of the iceberg. If anyone kind of knows a little bit about toxicology, you know, often in te- toxicology, it's getting a little bit more sophisticated these days. But in toxicology, we're measuring one chemical at a mm, time. Right. And so when we found out there was around about 200, say, chemicals inside these newborn babies, around 287 to, to a little bit below that, um, you know, what we kind of found out was that it was really the tip of the iceberg because we're not really measuring multiple combinations of chemicals. It's just one chemical at a time. But that kind of research was important to highlight the fact that we've got this stuff inside of us, you know. At that time, there wasn't even, you know, amounts or, or, you know, not a whole lot of correlation with, you know, particular health outcomes. But it was enough to kind of go, wow, look at all of these immense chemicals. I still get surprised these days when I do presentations because I assume that everyone knows this and I assume that parents know this and general population know this. And I'm I'm always, you know, really alarmed when I ask people, you know, how many chemicals or what kind of chemicals might be in newborn babies. And literally there's, you know, no people that put their hand up to say what might be in there, for example. Mm. We just haven't made that connection between environmental and industrial chemicals, many of which we can't see, you know, such as the off-gassing of the paints, for example, or the solvents or the glues yeah. or all of those convenient kind of chemicals such as the non-stick fry pans, etc. You know, we can't see them and so people don't assume or people assume that, you know, they're, they're inert and they're, you know, easy in the environment but they're not going to make their way in their bodies. And yet the research now shows that so many different chemicals are inside newborn babies. And when we're talking about newborn babies, I guess that that was the, you know, we, we tested newborn babies because it was easy to get the blood. We got the blood cord, et cetera. And it was kind of like, you know, alarming to kind of go, these are in these children who've just taken their first breaths, for example. But all of these chemicals are inside all of people, you know, yep. all of us. Yep. And so, you know, when I wrote this book, Chemical Free Kids, um, you know, which I don't think is possible. I don't think you can really raise chemical-free kids, but we can assist in reducing toxic exposure. You know, I often have to say to people, uh, these chemicals are in all of us. It's mm. not just children. They're yeah. in all of us. And we might have different body structures that can eliminate them a little bit easier than newborn babies, but that doesn't mean that we don't have them because we've got all of those as well. So Yeah, so that's sort of my background and my interest in chemicals and where it's come from, really. But but like, this research that you've done into um 
cord, umbilical cord blood and looking yep. at the toxin levels that were in there. Um, yep. It's really interesting to me that we know from previous studies where if one chemical has one effect, let's, let's just say it's an estrogenic effect, yep. then... If you add two, three, or four chemicals, it doesn't have a two, three, or four-fold effect. It can have a 100, 200, 300, 400 yep. times the effect. Yeah. Now, my question is this, is that when does it start to reach a public health issue? Like, well, when do we so start far, to see diseases? <laughs> that's a really great question. I'd actually, I'd love it if you, you spoke that kind of language to a lot of the policymakers because they haven't got this language yet, you know, so... Uh, we still, in a, you know, if we're talking about in a policy context, um, we haven't got great legislation in Australia still. Um, we're one of the countries that's really far behind in terms of a Western kind of context mm. and approach to chemicals, unfortunately. Um, obviously, as you, you know, you know, in 2006, Europe introduced the REACH legislation. And whilst the REACH legislation has you know, some complications to it and isn't perfect. It, it, it is the first legislation that put the, the precautionary principle right out front, you know, as a priority. And we haven't done that here in Australia. You know, you can pretty much get free reign on chemicals these days. I mean, you know, so much of the chemicals we have here have been banned in other countries, for example. Um, and so, you know, policymakers here still haven't made that connection between, you know, most of the time we talk about in terms of toxicology is, you know, low dose or, to you know, I don't know if you've heard those terms, but tolerable daily amounts. Yeah. You know, so there's this idea that you can, you know, have a certain amount of a chemical and it's sort of tolerable on this sort of a level. The problem is, though, is that, you know, as you just spoke about, you know, we don't know those chemical, con you know, concoctions, you know, as they kind of increase together or as they kind of meld together, the kind of magnification that can actually happen in terms of hormone disruption or, um, in, in, you know, obviously endocrine disruption and so forth. So most of the time these days we, we kind of proceed until danger is proven. And the problem with that is that we all have got different thresholds. So, for example, I always use the sunscreen example. We know that sunscreens have, and the Environmental Working Group's done some great work on sunscreens, yep. a whole range of different chemicals in sunscreens, and it's something that in Australia we use really frequently. And yet, you know, for example, if you put on a sunscreen, you might have an immediate dermatological impact. You know, you might come up immediately in sores or scabs or, you know, rashes and so forth. I might put it on and have no impact at all. You know, you bring those results to policymakers, et cetera, and, you know, it, it's often chucked out as, you know, something specific to you. Yeah, idiosyncratic, yeah. not to the whole population. That's right. You know, yeah. so, you know, it, it's a really, um, it's a problem we have here in Australia in terms of a policy context because it's actually up to us as consumers to fight for our right to get rid of chemicals. And obviously, as my you know example kind of explains, it's really hard to kind of get chemicals off the market in that sort of a yes. context because we all experience them quite differently, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, and yet we've got some really good policymakers, like international policymakers who are fighting for our right, you know, the POPs, you know, the, the persistent organic pollutants, the international committees that are trying to get rid of these sort of, you know, persistent you know, pollutants on an international scale. And that's where a lot of the, the only real change that's happening in Australia is kind of on that level. 
because on a on a you know kind of a specific Australian national level or even a local level, not a lot's happening in terms but, of chemical exposure, unfortunately. But you know, there's 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 a few issues here that I see, and and one of them is actually ours, the public, and that is um, I remember a 2004 yeah. newspaper clipping out of the. Uh, is it the Northern Star, the the, the yeah. local newspaper that goes to Mount Isa? And I always yeah. remember this. I've got it saved as a picture, and it says "Get bled for lead," um, and it's a call for the public to come and get their children tested for lead levels wow. because it's a known mining community where lead levels are yeah. high, and yeah. yet they had such a problem trying to drum up interest from the general Amazing. community that they had to offer fri- prizes including free flights. <laughs> wow. Because that, there was that is t- amazing, isn't it? Alarming. Alarming. That, that, uh, uh, yeah, people haven't made that connection or, you know, often when I when I've asked people questions about mercury or, you know, lead, you know, complete neurotoxins, mm. you know, complete nemesis of brain cells. They're going to just destroy your brain. Most of them haven't made that connection. I'll mm. often say what are these? And you often don't get people who know exactly what they are. They may have heard of them and they may have heard that they're not good, but they don't know the immediate impact, particularly on children, you yeah. know, that it's wiped out, you know, families, generations, et cetera, in different communities, completely wiped them out. And yet we, there is something that's stopping us from making an immediate, you know, personal decision or an immediate kind of impact on our own bodies and our own selves or that connection between the two is still not there. You know, it's just not it's not there as much as it should be. So this is sure. one, this is one of the things that I've noticed over the last, oh, let's say, five plus years, is yes. when I first gained an interest in nutritional medicine, there was a complete disinterest from government bodies in toxicology and the potential of pops or persistent organic pollutants, organochlorine pollutants in our environment. And there was the complete, you know, deaf, falling on deaf ears. And yet in the last five or six years, I've seen more and more, they're like, no, wait, there really does seem to be an issue here. So is the government starting to listen because there's this groundswell or are we still? Well, I I think it's actually occurring in different areas. Like I think it's happening, you know, I don't, I don't think it's happening a whole lot on – I think there's an international body that's really pushing Australia. Mm. You know, the atrazine was a, you know, a classic example where it forced Australia to ban, you know, atrazine, for example, yeah. herbicide. Yep. You know, it wasn't going to happen. So I think that there's that international – because there's countries like India and China who are banning them before Australia, for example. Yeah. You know? So I, I definitely think that's going on. But I also think that there's a really big push from the environment movement, for, from the marine life, for example. You know, all the research is in that area as well. Right. Because we're realizing it's having an impact on not just human bodies, but on marine life, on our food sources, on their food sources. So we're losing, and all of this is coming from industrial chemicals, you know. Yeah. So I think in that sense, there's there's more. I mean, often when you talk to, I used to in the past talk to environmentalists, and they used to be all about the, you know, trees, et cetera, et cetera, which is absolutely fantastic, important to do that. 
but that internal environment, you know, our own bodies, they didn't really make that connection to, you know. So that kind of thing, what's going on in the environment is actually happening in our bodies. Mm. I think that's occurring a little bit more and from different kind of disciplines. And I think it's happening from a whole lot of different angles. Um, because certainly when we talk about human health, it's still not necessarily there. You know, when I speak to policymakers or even government, you know, most of them haven't heard about this or they're not necessarily mil- willing to make changes based on particularly the agricultural kind of sector. You know, that's probably the biggest push, which is pushing back. You know, if you, I don't know if you saw the, the white paper around food security, mm. you know, it, it's largely talking about the fact that food security is going to be a massive issue, you know, with the population growing the way it is, particularly globally. Yep. Australia is in a really good position because we can actually grow food and export a lot a lot of it. Yep. The problem with that paper, though, was that it, it spoke about, you know, the, the same kind of monocultures, industrial agriculture, which is all just still chemical ag- agriculture going yep. on, you know, yep. feedlots and so forth. So in that sort of a sense, there was nothing. There was nothing about sustainability, nothing about organics, nothing about you know, small scale, um, you know, food sovereignty, you know, our right to know where our food comes from. None of that was actually coming from agriculture. So I think agriculture has a long way to go. And yet I think other disciplines such as the marine life people and some of the environmental groups are actually starting to make those links. And so we're all able to join up a little bit better than what we were previously, I'd say. Can I digress and talk? It's sort of linked in, but what, what do you think then is going to be the fallout from Codex Alimentarius? The original thought was to basically protect safe transport, if you like, of reasonable quality yeah. foods from India to Australia to Afghanistan to wherever yep. and know that yep. rice is rice um, and milk yep. is milk, right? But yet we see continuing issues. There was that contamination of rice last yeah. year, 2014, yep. where how many, was it scores of children were killed? Yes, yes, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. So I'm, yeah. ju- I'm wondering, when you're talking about food sovereignty, is Codex Alimentarius going to be a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I think there's a real... I think what's going on in most countries, there is a food sovereignty movement, mm. which I kind of really like, you know. Like, I like that that idea of being able to know where our own food comes from, grow our own food. I mean, we're lucky in Australia because we've got the, the land and the ability to do that necessarily. You know, yeah. we've, got, we've got that. I know other countries don't, may need other countries' support to do that. And in that sort of sense, you know, the global pantry could be a good one, you know. But if we're conscious about it, because at the moment it's just like free reign, pretty much, you know. Um, and, you know, my understanding and what I've, you know, looked at is that not everything is actually assessed when it's coming into Australia. We might have these standards. They're not necessarily always kept up to date, no. uh, as we saw with the rice, you know, issue and so forth. Um, but, you know, I think there is a pushback around food, local food sovereignty, you know, and most cultures, have thrived. If you look at civilizations in the past, they've thrived based on their food culture. Yeah. And it's always been based on seasonal and local. Mm. And whilst people up, you know, argue that, you know, that's not essential, you know, people in other places can't necessarily do that, people with, you know, in desert areas, etc. I think, you know, if we can do that as much as possible, I think we are much more secure as a country, knowing where our food comes from and the quality of it. So it's not just about food, but it's about the kind of quality of food, knowing where that specifically come from, you know, knowing who the farmers are, um, their work conditions, the soils, etc., is absolutely critical, you know, and I think that globalisation issue around food is, is constantly being questioned. Mm. So, yes, I think it's a huge issue. It's a really big issue. So, just mm. getting back to your research, when you were mm. looking at the toxins in umbilical 
cord blood. Were these toxins that were more likely to be ingested into the mother with the food chain or were they more likely to be toxins from around the home, for instance, lead paint and, you know, chromium copper arsenic from the copper logs and and that sort of thing? Yeah, great question. So um, we put them kind of into three kind of categories. One was kind of waste byproducts. Mm. You know, the things like the leads and the cadmiums and the formaldehydes, obviously, which is a neurotoxin, obviously, but also, um, you know, some of the solvents, dioxins, the mercuries, you know, the coppers and so forth, you know, PCBs. So all of those were kind of waste byproducts as a result of paper bleaching or, you know, the manufacturing of plastic, for example, you know, all of those, those waste products. So they're certainly there and they're usually just in the environment, you know, you know, in the environment, in the air, uh, certainly things like mercury in our mouths often, not with these newborn babies, obviously, but if they've got parents, you know, with compromised teeth, which is often the case if you've actually, you know, when you think about in terms of preconception care and then being pregnant and often you have mothers that are, that are quite sick, yep. we know that things such as mercury is a really, you know, huge issue because we know it crosses the placenta, you know, of course. So, But a lot of these were like kind of the waste byproducts. And then there were the the other the next section, which were the consumer products. They were the things such that are going on in the home, you know, the personal care products, the bisphenol A, the plastics, you know, the water bottles, the yep. heating up of food in microwaves, um, and and hand in hand with the bisphenol A and the phthalates, which are all in plastics and they make plastic soft but also hard in terms of when you know, like I think about um nail polish when I think of a phthalate, you know, it goes yep. on liquid and goes hard very quickly, very similar to that in plastics, for example. So these are all the consumer products, the Teflon, you know, all those convenient things, mm. you know, the Teflon and the Scotch guard, you know, prevents really handy, prevents stains, but also can actually get through the skin and into our bodies. You know, the, the non-stick Teflon fry pans, very handy, but they off-gas, for example. Yeah. Um, triclosan is a really big one and one that's actually going to come up uh, more and more because Canada's doing some great stuff on that. Triclosan obviously is antibacterial. Yeah, yeah. antibacterial, yeah, so. Yeah, it's antibacterial and it's, it's in pretty much, you know, anything pretty much that says, you know, all those stuff that say antibacterial socks, antibacterial chopping boards, <laughs> antibacterial, you know, hankies, antibacterial, you know, tissues. Um, all of those have got a triclosan in it and they're becoming more and more. And pe- people have shifted, I think, from, uh, clean and having a real clean need for cleanliness compared to, you know, hygienic, almost like that disinfected mm. kind of hygienic thing. And that's where triclosan came in. And the big thing about it, obviously, is the, the move towards gut health, which is what I'm going to talk a little bit about later. But that shift to go, well, we've got these microbes. And when we use triclosan, we get rid of not only the bad bacteria and the bad microbes and the, the potentially kind of pathogenic ones, but we also get rid of all the good ones as well. Exactly. So there's countries such such as Canada in particular, who are doing some really great stuff around triclosan and actually, you know, looking at it as a potential, you know, long-term problem for us. Um, but, you know, along, alongside triclosan and all the dioxins and the plastics and so forth, we also had things like fragrances. Fragrances, as you know, are pretty much in everything, you know. It, you know, you go into a ladies' change room and there's just fragrances everywhere. Or, you know, the ones that are on the wall that, you know, squirt out fragrances, obviously they're there. Uh, and a lot of the parabens and the preservatives and so forth. Um, so there was that kind of layer of waste byproducts and then consumer 
kind of products that we have in the home. And then the third group was those industrial chemicals, which you talked about earlier, those industrial chemicals and pesticides banned 30 plus years ago that are still in our bodies today. You know, those classic things such as the DDT, which, you know, our grandparents introduced which, you know, then got passed on and was sprayed everywhere, first of all, in the war, you know, to get rid of mites and mosquitoes and so forth. And then after the war, they brought it into the home as a general pesticide and then they realised that it's bioaccumulative. So Mm. it gets in our fat cells and it's passed on from the next generation to the next generation. So a lot of these newborn babies were being born with pesticides that were banned 30 years ago, for example. And just I think that was probably one of the highlights, if you can call it a highlight of the study, because, you know, it really is talking about, um, you know, the fact that it's it's accumulative. And if we, you know, these newborn babies, and it's, I guess, you know, when I spoke to um, Stacey Malkin, so Stacey Malkin is the president of the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics. She talked about this term, um, which was chemical trespass. And I really love it because, you know, we've got a generation of kids, including, you know, even ourselves, who are completely being trespassed on by huge companies, you know, some of the the pesticides, some of the plastics that, you know, they're taking their first breath and they've already got such a huge range of chemicals inside of them, you know, and they haven't chosen that. They haven't been even privy to that. And yet there is a, a massive trespass. So, you know, some of the intergenerational ethics and lawyers are kind of getting really interested in this idea of intergenerational ethics and the impact of industrial chemicals on, you know, not just this generation, but generations to come. Yeah. Which is fascinating. So they're the three kind of categories that we kind of got interested in. Yeah. Well, I remember talking about intergenerational, you know, chemical trespass. Um, The one that comes to mind there was DES. Um, Diethylstrelbestrol, still bestrol. It was a, a drug used, I think, for morning sickness um, yeah. or PMT or something like that. And it didn't yeah. affect the mothers, it affected the daughters of the mothers. They got yep. um, certain cancers. Yes, yes but, it's, that's a classic one, absolutely. And I think that's what we, we and we do that less, you know, like I, I think that was, that was important to kind of, you know, when we looked at those generational kind of things to come. People will say we don't do those sort of long-term chemicals anymore. We still do a few. We're much more mindful of that in terms of what's happened in policy changes that have occurred. But I also think we do a lot more chemicals, you know, low-dose chemicals that just move through the environment very quickly and through our bodies very quickly. But it's still having such an impact on the body these days, you know. So there's those space issues, but there's also, you know, those long-term ones that I spoke about before, generational ones. And then there's just quick ones, but they're moving through the body very quickly. And, yeah. you know, the impact of an, you know, kind of a body that's constantly being under attack all the time is going to have some impact on the cellular level at, at least or hormonal level at least. Just talking about a few of those foods, and you were mentioning the different types of chemicals that were found in the in the cord blood, I remember yep. issues. And, and what I what I think we're seeing now is we're seeing things that should not be in the food chain are now leaching yep. through from industrial waste into the food chain. So, for instance, there was a I believe it was a Choice magazine expose some years ago on fish that was imported from Thailand laced with flame retardants. There was also Amazing. there was also lead found in yeah. cocoa that we yeah. that we um, sprinkle on our coffees, and all of these Amazing. yeah mm-hmm. real big issues. So 
from yep. that sort of comment to a question, from the findings of your research and those comments, what do you think needs to happen to be addressed for future generations? You know, it's a, it's a huge one. Like I think what I think how we do society around toxic chemicals mm. is so bad, yeah. you know. And it's not just that because it comes down to the core. It's a, it's, it becomes a huge issue because it comes down to the core of how we do life. You know, yeah. it, you know how we do business, how we consume, how much we consume these days, um, the marketing. So I think it's a really huge one. I think the Europe took some great steps with introducing the REACH legislation and starting to implement a precautionary principle, you know, which essentially means that companies really need to prove, you know, that what's in there, or that at least they need to identify through MSCSs what's actually specifically in their chemical, what, if any, have a toxic impact or a toxic load on the, on the body or that of animals as well, before that's actually able to be released onto the market. Now, this has caused quite a bit of uproar in Europe because there's some, it, it's slowing down, obviously, yep. you know. These days, you know, we're able to produce the product and get it out very quickly in Australia or other countries. But in in Europe, they're starting to question those, you know, can it go on the market before it's actually tested? And often the case is, you know, they're actually stopping these kind of, you know, chemicals actually going out into the environment before they're actually, um, you know, rather than what we actually have today, which yeah. is proceeding until danger is proven. So I think, you know, I think at the core of it, it's a big question because I think it we have to start questioning how we, you know, what we consume, how we consume, how much we consume, and what kind of companies we actually are going to support. And I do think that the dollar counts. You know, we've got an opportunity mm. to spend that dollar on, you know, like vote with your dollar, you know, really, because there's some really great companies doing fantastic stuff. And we need to kind of definitely create a standard around that and say, I'm not willing to put up with that. I want that, you know. And unfortunately, I think we're in Australia, we're a very compliant society often, you know, because even in chemical, but there's not a whole lot of an uproar around all of these kind of chemical exposures. Hmm. But I do think it's important that we actually start having a voice around them and kind of really questioning, you know, companies, you know, and the way we do you know, kind of ethical companies or not ethical companies and why we're doing that. I mean, it's crazy how we do kind of consumers in these days. Yeah. I I think leading on from a previous comment you made, one of the biggest sadnesses, I think, that's happened is, and I mean this as a generic term, not as a brand, but what I call the the Dettol generation, and that is that that it wasn't just hygiene, it was sterility. We needed, and you still see it in TV ads today, you need that kitchen bench top to be absolutely sterile for it to be a good, healthy um, family environment for your nice beautiful child. And that's not the case because we're wiping out these important, these vital microbes, which we interact with on a daily basis to cause us health. Um, And even when we start to wipe out some of these supposedly bad guys, as long as they're in low levels, they're actually doing as good, not bad. Yeah, absolutely. That that is being you know, and we know that the hygiene hypothesis is a, you know absolutely. a really interesting one. Absolutely. The hygiene hypothesis, mm. which you know, which was talking about the fact that you know we've got this kind of you're absolutely right, this debt old generation, and we now know that these debt old generation are getting sicker as a result of wiping out their immune systems, wiping out all the good bacteria, all the bad bacteria, but also all the good bacteria. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's a really critical one. And you see it all over the you know, if you watch television, you. Know, it's very antimicrobial, very antibacterial. 
bacteria based. Still, and I think as a generation, we've kind of that's that's the way we've gone. Yeah, I don't as get opposed it. to being clean, you know, I, you know, and also having some of those germs around and having those microbes around. And I think that's what comes back to me. You know, coming back to our origins, you know, it was encouraged for me growing up to go climb trees and to that's you know right. go roll down you know yep. mountains with you know mud and stuff. You know, <laughs> Mount Canopolis. And I was swinging <laughs> off things. You know, absolutely. That's what we did. You know, that's what we did growing up. Yeah. And it really was about going, you get stronger and healthier, and all the research is showing that. But we've actually gone the other way these days. I know. It's really sad. And I yearn for the day, like, for instance, we accept now with yogurt and probiotics. I yearn for the day that a food will say contains germs. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about that because you actually make fermented food. Which involves yeah, that, ooh, that's a, germs. That's a, that's a good lead into it because <laughs> absolutely my background was all around toxicity of the body and you can actually spend so much time talking about chemicals, but it can be really kind of like full on. You yeah. know, that the big the last question you asked me about what do we kind of do about it? Because it, it's so big the issue. So for me, you know, my step was going, Well, what's what solution or what kind of you know, if I can be part of the solution in some ways, what could I offer? And for me, a big one was actually setting up a fermentation, you know, kind of collective and a fermentation company. And that's where Roots in Nature actually came into. So, um, yeah, I'm a director of a company now, which is all about gut health, you know, because most disease occurs from the gut. Um, and it's all about, you know, developing that symbiotic relationship with microbes, essentially. And the more, the more we see and more we, we read the research, the more we're actually seeing how critical these little critters can actually play in our lives essentially. Now when most people think about fermentation they probably think about either spoilage of food or beer yep. manufacturer <laughs> manufacturing. Yep. So tell me about what you're doing because there's actually a, one of these fermented foods that's really good for our gut. Yeah so you know I think the key to health really these days in terms of reducing toxic exposure but also building resiliency is through fermentation and I think the key to health is finding a way to optimise our gut health. Now, one of the ways to do that, and absolutely you can do it, and people are talking about probiotics and capsule forms of probiotics and they can be absolutely critical, which is all about really essentially living microbes and getting as many living microbes back into your gut essentially and back into your body essentially. Mm -hmm. But I guess fermentation is... Is, I guess the, the origins of, of, of probiotics, you know, um, most of the microbes in ferments have never been grown in a lab. They're just something that historically we've actually, you know, used and developed and grown and developed a relationship with. I mean, Michael Pollan talks about fermentation as he, he, he says, eat some foods that they themselves have been pre-digested by bacteria yes. and fungi. That's his kind of definition yeah. of fermentation. Um, and yes, fermentation really is just, it's designed to re restore the integrity of our gut by increasing the number of beneficial microorganisms. And that's, in a nutshell, kind of what it is. It's also designed to preserve nutrients and break them down into easily digestible forms. So something like a cabbage, ferment that, you know, and the king of the ferment world is actually a sauerkraut. It's got so many microbes, more than what you'd actually ever get in a probiotic, bioavailable, for example. Mm -hmm. But it is actually more easily digestible and it preserves more nutrients than the original form. So, you know, as we actually preserve it or as we actually ferment it over about two or three weeks, it breaks the cabbage down into an easily digestible form, which is just teeming with bacteria, for example. Um, and it increases the nutritive value. You know, the other thing I just love talking about in terms of fermentation 
is what you spoke about earlier, which was it really creates a protective environment against harmful pathogenic microorganisms. So, you know, in theory, you know, what, you know, putting fermented foods into your body not only just increases the microbial count and if you get enough of them and also a wide variety, you get a different family, you know, lots of different types of, of, of different microbes. But also, you know, their job really is to, they're kind of like the ninjas of the, the you know, the, the gut lining essentially. So their job is actually to kind of create like a protective lining. And so, you know, inevitably we are going to get viruses and we are going to get some, you know, some colds and some flus and so forth. And if our body theoretically is strong enough and it's got enough microbes, they'll be able to actually fight most of that off. It doesn't mean you won't ever get one of those, but it'll actually be able to, the microbes will be able to fight off and put, create that kind of protective layer. Yeah. Um, in your gut as well. So, I mean, that's really exciting. All the research that's coming out about that is really exciting. Um, but, you know, that whole area of, of not just ferments but gut health, and there's a lot of um, really interesting work coming coming out about that. And some of the, you know, one of the probably, I get really excited when I talk about this, but um, <laughs> most of our friends, the micro word, they're, they're largely single-celled organisms. You know, millions can fit into an eye of a needle, which is really exciting. And get this. There's more microbes on a person's hands than there are people on the entire planet. Mm. You know, in a lot of ways, that sort of information is really interesting because when we use triclosan or some of those antimicrobial gels, when you think about it like that, we've actually just wiped out all the bad stuff, but also all the good stuff. You know, we've wiped out, you know, all those microbes, you know, that, that exist on the entire planet on our hands, essentially. You know, and it's important that, you know, in a lot of ways, people are talking about humans less as humans and more as kind of we're like a host because we've got obviously more microbes than or more microbial genes on our bodies in our bodies than actually human genes in our bodies absolutely which is fascinating you know so our job you know in my mind when you look at all this research and um gershom wrote that great book around you know the, the gut brain kind of connection there mm. the more we learn about it the more you realize that instead of destroying these microbes our job really is to create a relationship with them and a really beneficial relationship with them and fermentation is certainly a really easy way and an easy way that families and parents and people in everyday life, like you don't need anything very special to ferment, but to kind of really easily bring gut health back into their lives very simply. So we've mentioned things like sauerkraut. There's other cabbage yes. uh, ferments like kimchi, um, yes. uh, of which I think I remember reading there was was it 160 official ways of making kimchi? But anyway, it's, it's enormous and it varies. You know, I went to China last year and they were very particular about kimchi because yeah. if you went to, you know, a woman next door who was from Korea, yeah. she had a very different way and hers was the authentic way, she used to tell me, compared to the Chinese woman next door. So everyone's got, yeah, compared to the, the Singaporeans and the Malaysians, you know, yeah. they all had different ways of their authentic kimchi. But certainly kimchi are really remarkable. Absolutely. Yes. And then then we've got, you know, um, um, tofu, which, you know, yes. the, from the much maligned soy, um, uh, yes. but the fermented product, the tofu, yes. again, mm -hmm. various ways of making it and various benefits. Um, there's yes. so many other foods. I mean, gosh, yes. if you wanted to go really weird, you could go to um, the Inuit who stuff fermented penguins under their bed. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, yep. so... But I want to talk a little bit about your speciality, and that's kombucha. Yep. Now, how yes. did this evolve from yes. a lifestyle choice for you into yes. a thriving business? 
Um, for me, it was more of a passion. So obviously, I was talking before about looking at chemical toxicity. When I was doing my postdoc research, which was all about kind of policy and looking at comparing different policies around uh, toxic exposure or just chemical exposure, and I was comparing Europe, Australia, and the US. When I was actually doing my postdoctoral research, I kept drinking this drink because I'm really obviously into fermented foods. Um, and generally, I kept drinking this drink over there called kombucha. Didn't actually know what it was. You know, this was five or six years ago. Didn't yeah. know actually what it was. Had a lot of fermented foods in our lives. And I was at a research symposium over there in San Francisco. And then I just one day just got interested, more and more interested in it to a point where I was just having kombucha all the time. And it was such an easy drink. And so I started thinking to myself, well, this is a really easy way to get, you know, obviously in Australia, you know, besides um, when I ask this question at, at ferment workshops, you know, people people often don't know, you know, all the stuff that's fermented or even if it is fermented in Australia, it's usually been pasteurized. Mm. But, you know, probably we don't have any cultural kind of ferments. You know, when you go to China, kimchi, Europe, et cetera, they've all got their specific ferments. All yep. ancient cultures have got yep. a ferment. You know, in Australia, we haven't got anything, you know, and there's people who, you know, probably have gone through most of their lives eating dead food, you know. And so the closest thing in Australia we had was uh, probably beer <laughs> you know, yeah, as, a, right. as a ferment, which has usually then been pasteurized. Pasteurized, yeah, that's know. right. Yeah, but, you know, when I was in the United States, I kept thinking this is something that I could bring back and really easy introduce, like introduce it very easily into kind of families' lives. Um, that and also water kefir, milk kefir. So beverages were something that we could easily kind of do. And so we just started doing, you know, got back to Australia, looked around on the market and there wasn't anyone. There wasn't anyone doing kombucha on the market, which because I just came back just craving it really or craving you know, a similar kind of a, a ferment. Yep. And so we started brewing ourselves largely and then it just got a little bit more and then we'd, uh, you know, friends and family and so forth would want it. So we'd start bottling a little bit more. And so for something that went from like, you know, a couple of cups a week or maybe a litre a week, you know, we went to 10 litres and 20 litres and then 100 litres and so forth. And then... um yeah, at that point, then we went, well, actually, this is something I love to do. And it was it was a combination of producing a, an organic beverage that was a fermented beverage, but also being able to talk to people. It gave me an inroad that I didn't necessarily have in academia and still don't necessarily have. The research in academia is brilliant, amazing, but it didn't necessarily give me an inroad into talking to families and community. And that has always been my speciality. Uh-huh. That's always been my my passion. I love yep. working with families. And so producing a product and then being able to produce a company and grow a company that we could produce a beautiful product as well as do workshops. And so every six weeks we have fermentation workshops where we just talk about microbes and gut health. It's exciting. You know, that's totally exciting stuff for me. And so that's where it's kind of, you know, come from. But we didn't anticipate it. You know, we bought 20 bottles the first week to our organic market up in up in Brisbane. It was snatched up in like 20 minutes. So the next week we bought, you know, 25 wow. and then 50 and then 100. And then we thought, oh, we need to actually start getting a bit more serious here. And it was just one of those passions that grew into a business as opposed to, you know, artificially enforcing something. It was something that just sort of grew very organically. And I guess our philosophy has been, I guess in a lot of ways, it's, you know, for me, implementing what I preach. 
You know, so if I talk about ethical businesses, if I talk about, you know, organic and food sovereignty, then it, for me, it was creating a business model that was actually able to fulfill on those things. You know, so our, you know, our brewery, for example, doesn't have plastic in it, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, we avoid those sort of any kind of, you know, we're certified organic. We know all of our farmers. We brew in oak, you know, all of those things. And so it became a model, which, you know, we've got other companies coming to us and saying, how do you do that? You know, you know, because the mainstream is often very chemical laden kind of path to do it. And so I guess in a nutshell, that's where it kind of come from. Can, can you explain to me, though, well, yes. firstly, I think what kombucha is, because my yes. mindset is that it's this sort of wet mushroom that's sort of floating on top yes. of a, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you're not far from the truth. <laughs> okay. Well, t- can you explain to our listeners what kombucha is, yes. how is it made, and also the yes. safety factors that they need to be aware of if they're planning yes. to make it? Because I understand years ago there was a, a bit of a scare, and I, I, I don't think it's, yes. I think it's something people need to know about how to make properly. Yeah, absolutely. So all fermented foods are something that you have to be like anything. You have to take care and making sure that you get the right ingredients, you've got the right conditions, you are we've got clean everything, for example. So kombucha is essentially, if we're talking specifically about kombucha, kombucha is something that's been brewed for 2,000 years. Uh, it's always been around and it's essentially a fermented tea. Uh, it doesn't taste like tea at all, so it starts off with a sweet cup of tea. Yep. So something like a black or green tea or Rui Boss tea. And we actually put it, you know, you can use it as sugar, you can do a rapaduro, you can do a honey, which is more of a jun sort of style of kombucha. But all ferments need a carbohydrate or a sugar. Our job as brewers is to brew out that sugar. You know, it's the one thing that the microbes love and can convert into organic acids and enzymes and so forth. But on top of that sweet cup of tea, you actually introduce a microorganism called a SCOBY, a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. You essentially put that actually on the tea. It's an aerobic ferment, so you actually put a cover on it and you just let it do its thing. And it may take a week or two. It expands to the size of the vessel. It creates a baby essentially on top. And it's one of those microorganisms that grows. It feeds on the tea and sugar. And in that process, it converts all of those sugars and all those tannins in the tea to a range of of different acids and organic uh, enzymes and bacteria and yeasts and so forth. And after two weeks, your job as a brewer is to actually brew out all that sugar and it tastes uh, kind of got a little bit of a kick to it. So it yep. doesn't really taste like much like a tea. It tastes like a, a kombucha, a kind of a fermented beverage. Um, and then from there, you can actually take it off, drink it as is, or you can get a bit fancy with it and add in things such as ginger, turmeric, galang, or pretty much anything you wanted to and, and bottle it off essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a really easy way of actually creating a ferment at home. Now, the things you do have to, as you said before, in terms of health and safety issues, kombucha's never ever been proven to have caused any reactions, uh, in, you know, at all. Except for everyone is different with fermented foods, and this is kombucha, kefir, sauerkraut, whatever. Yep. Fermented foods can actually, yeah, detoxify really quickly or it's that classic thing as if your body doesn't feel like it, don't have it, you know. It's, it's, you know, when you you smell a product and you just can't get it in mouth and you think, oh, someone told me it's good for me, I've got to consume it. Um, It's one of those things, you know, that that can actually have an adverse reaction to you. You you could get bloated, uh, you could get gassy, you could get diarrhea, all of those sorts of things. And essentially what you're doing is introducing a range of microbes, new microbes into your body. So if you're not used to having fermented foods or even probiotics of any or even living food for that matter, 
it can be quite an onslaught into your body. So it's just a slow, slow kind of process. But having said that, fermented foods generally just have got all of those, as I said before, those benefits to it. Um, it's like a lemon. It's very hard to contaminate kombucha. Mm. It's like a lemon, so it's really acidic. Um but very alkalizing to the body, so it's really hard to contaminate it. However, having said that, it's like any food. You have to take care of it. You have to look after If you're making a yogurt at home or anything, you have to make sure that the conditions are right. You have to make sure that you know your, your brewing practices are well thought through um, and you're using all the best ingredients and so forth. So I hope that gives you an indication of kind of cleanliness or hygiene issues. But but they can learn from your business how to make kombucha, correct? Yeah, it's a, it's a growing. I think that the thing that is really interesting, we were talking before about kind of movements that are going on. Fermentation is certainly a movement that's growing. And I also think things like pickling and canning yep. and knowing where our food comes from, that is certainly a growing movement. I still think it's a small proportion. Of, you know, In my world, it's like the whole you know, world operates in that kind of level, but I step outside of it and I realise most of the population still eat fast food and junk food or a lot of those, you know, population. So I still think it's small, but it's a growing group of of people. I mean, when we started five years ago doing fermentation workshops, it was much smaller than what it is today. There's more and more people catching on to the whole idea of, you know, most disease occurs from the gut. So really, I need to increase my microbes and maybe cleanse out some of the microbes that aren't so good. So are you saying, though, that that you said earlier that kombucha, some people shouldn't take it, but my yep. uh, what I'm picking up is that maybe they should start off with a smaller dose, not necessarily avoid yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And some people, you know, like if you've got families with kids, I'll often say to kids even, um, you know, start with some sauerkraut, yep. start with some really, uh, you know, and just little bits of it, you know, start with a little bit of milk kefir, but just little bits of it, start with a little bit of kombucha and have a little bit of it. You know, it is just starting very slowly and then building your way up. Mm. And it's it's kind of trusting your body absolutely and seeing what your body particularly feels like at that particular day. It's like, you know, I, I talk a lot about gut health, but, you know, one of the things is, is trusting your gut. And when you do get kind of clean, in my experience, people can actually start feeling, what do I actually feel like today? Is it protein? Is it fat? Um, What kind of fermented foods? And I generally say to people, it's not even you need a huge amount of it. It's like, you know, when you go to China or, you know, any of the the Asian cultures, there's always like a pickle on the side or there's some bit of cabbage on the side or something funky on the side. It's not a lot. It might just be a tablespoon. Um, And that's all you really need to start with. It's not a lot, but it's something that we need to start introducing to our you know, our plates, you know, if you're going to have a good roast, add a little bit of sauerkraut to the edge of it, for example, you know, so it's, it's something that's just little by little, but eventually, I, you know, in my experience, I found that the more people who have fermented foods, the more you feel like it as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, and I think you, you raised a very good point there is that sometimes people think sauerkraut, ooh, cabbage, but they're thinking yeah. about cabbage on its own or sauerkraut on its own. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, you think about cabbage mixed in with a beautiful roast beef. And yeah, then the flavours come out, yep. and that's where yeah, the beauty comes out. So it's this holistic yep. use of it, not as a single agent. I, I think people yeah. need to get back to, you know, how they were used culturally, as you said, the Absol- pickle on the side. Absolutely, that, that's absolutely right. We have the same experience. People look at it and and they just don't know how to use it, and it's it's totally just a little bit. And try it as this, try it as that, you know. Um, and it can totally enhance a meal. You know, it's like pickles. Absolutely. And people even with sauerkraut, people will be funny about sauerkraut. 
uh, pickles they're not so bad about, you know, or not so funny about, you know, but it's culturally the way they were actually raised. Yes. So I think you can use fermented foods in so many different ways and you can get so, you know, and you can do like long ferments, like a kombucha is a slightly long ferment or sauerkraut's even longer than that. But you can do really quick ferments. You know, you may actually just want to do an aerobic ferment of some of your fruit to break it down over, you know, like half a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so some of them can be actually, or are you doing a salsa for the night? You can actually just, you know, make sure you make the salsa, give it a bit of an air Air, you know, air, you know, aerobic ferment, mm. and leave that out for you know twelve hours, and have it during the evening. You asked about some of the the possible issues. So one of the things which I was almost about to forget, but I'll, I'll, I'll say now, fermented foods can potentially have alcohol levels in them. So when you ferment something there could be trace amounts of alcohol. And so that is something that you really need to be kind of mindful of. So if you're making a salsa, for example, sugars in, in you know, in tomatoes will actually ferment, you know, quite sweet. Uh-huh. So you will actually get a, a you know, you, you never get high alcohol content in any way, but just be mindful that you may yeah. actually get up half a percent or something. And that's something just to be mindful of where some of the kombuchas and some of the kefirs will actually or could potentially get up a little bit higher. So just something to be mindful of. I remember in my uni days brewing some homebrew Cooper's beer and we added just a touch yep. too much sugar. That oh. increased the alcohol content. That would, absolutely. <laughs> that would, that and a yeast, because it's mainly yeast. It's yeah. like a ginger beer. You know, yeah, these that's right. ginger beer is, you know, because it's literally just yeast and sugar. Mm. They love each other. They're the ones that actually create, you know, the <laughs> ethanol in it. So beautiful if you want actually a, a ferment, you know. Oh, and to be honest, like I kind of like the idea of if you do want to make an alcohol, you do want to make a beer, you do want to make a, a mead, try making them at home. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole tradition that we've actually lost. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I think part of fermenting, fermenting is actually claiming back our past because – Generations ago, you know, a sourdough culture would be passed on from the next generation to the next. You know, at some point, you know, particularly in the last 50 years, we decided bacteria and microbes, you know, were not good. And our job as humans was to try and control them, you know, and they're always going to win these days and they're totally winning these days. Um, But, you know, we we were told that they're, they're not very good. And so we kind of lost all of those old traditions. And I think what's going on at the moment is a bit of a revival of those fermented goods, you know, and that's reclaiming your sourdoughs and, you know, bringing back, you know, grandma's pickling and canning and so forth. All of those are absolutely critical to, to our own health and our at the health of our bodies, absolutely. Now, you, you wrote your first book about chemical-free kids um, yes. and that was talking about your, your research into the umbilical cord blood and the toxin levels. Yes. But you're also writing a second book. So yes. now I, I yes. want to sort of combine them. So how did your research lead into writing your first book? And with your second book, uh, yes. where are you going to take this with regards to what you're doing at the moment with fermented foods? Yeah, so the first book was largely, it was, it's quite an academic book, you know, that classic first book. <laughs> I really like it. But it, it was written in a classically, you know, uh, a way which was quite academic, really evidence-based, fantastic, you know, in that sort of sense. So it was largely about what's going on, how do we measure toxicity of the body, what kind of chemicals are in the body, uh, what kind of chemicals are in things such as I worked with Bill Statham who wrote The Chemical Maze, a fantastic man. And, it, it, you know, it was all about what's in personal care 
you know, products, what's in baby products, what's in some food products, you know, that kind of angle, a little bit on food, but mainly on personal care products and baby products and so forth and unpicking each one of those chemicals and so forth, uh, which was fantastic. You know, I think, and then my next book that I'm doing now has moved into not just chemical exposure and reducing chemical exposure, because I think reducing chemical exposure is absolutely critical. And, you know, these days the most you know, chemical exposed place is actually in the home. And so in the home, given that that's just got so many chemicals in it, it means it well, gives me kind of confidence and a bit of hope as, as a mother because then I can actually choose what's going on in my home. And so one of the areas that I started exploring a couple of years ago was not just reducing toxic exposure, but the reality is, is that we're going to be exposed to toxic chemicals. And so how do we build resiliency? So, you know, what I got really interested in was that idea of food as core business and absolutely core business in my home, in most people's homes and something that, you know, it's something we had to do, as I said before, every single day. So this next book is about how to build resiliency in our bodies through food. So it touches on not just what's going on in terms of chemical exposure, that's the first kind of chapter, but it also then goes through, you know, what can we actually do to build resiliency? And Mm. it critically kind of touches upon and works with organic farmers. You know, really, if we want to actually start looking for solutions, you know, organic and biodynamic farmers are absolutely the key to kind of really changing how we do things. They're already doing it. And that's something that could actually transform not just, you know, our own bodies, but, you know, the soil, uh, animals, plants. You know, it's one of those holistic kind of ethical approaches that we could do. So this book kind of talks a lot about food sovereignty and food security. It then goes into some of those really practical things such as uh, fats, you know, how do we actually use fats mm. um, and how fats historically been used and how they've kind of been, you know, kind of demonized over the last couple of years and how we need to reclaim good fats. And also very importantly talks about uh, microbes and that's always my passion. So it was all about, well, how do we actually build resiliency through good fats? How do we build resiliency through good microbes and through good fermentation? So it gives some examples of that. And the other one is obviously water. How do we address water? So obviously water's got most significant amounts of chemicals and hormones and endocrine disruptors in it. So how do we create a good water? So it's that, sort of that information, wow. but also some solutions. So that's the second book, which is being edited at the moment and will hopefully be out on shelves within the next three months. This is fantastic news. This is all the stuff that we really need to be doing in our everyday lives. And you're now yeah. going to be giving us a practical uh, instruction yeah. booklet as to how to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. We're hoping to do that. <laughs> definitely got the evidence there we're just you know I'm co-authoring with Tabitha McIntosh an amazing naturopath in Sydney yes and so yes we're actually at that last bit of trying to pull together really practical solutions at the back so not just giving people the information but also saying well, what do I need to do and what area do I need to tackle because when you you kind of look at this area as you've probably experienced I've experienced it it's completely overwhelming mm. you know so it was about for this book tackling kind of some big issues but also some everyday issues that we could do which was you know which is meant to be a really easy manual. Am I allowed to ask the title? Do you know what? I can't even tell you the title because we don't have one yet. <laughs> you know what? I, I, you know, my the title I was coming up with was so academic. You know, it was something like you know food sovereignty and building body resiliency. And and you know when I'm working with our editor, which is Peppermint Magazine, it's mm. gorgeous. They just looked at me. <laughs> 
Yeah, so there was something so unsexy about that title. I said, okay, could you guys come up with it? So they're editing the book at the moment. So I'm hoping at the end of this, we'll, we'll have a really fantastic title and we'll make sure you're one of the, going to be one of the first people we let know about what that title is. It's, ter- it's terribly embarrassing because most people start with the title. Yep, we haven't got that yet. It's going to be probably the last thing we come up with. Yeah, well, so I hope it's a good one. Well, Dr. Sarah Lance, I, I can't thank you enough. I really do applaud you for all the work you've done. Not just in a, a more academic um, arena, but also bringing this back to the people, because this is yeah, where it starts you. and ends, is bringing this instruction book for for lifestyle to to the masses. So I really applaud you for what you've done. Thank you, thank you so much. And I will tell our listeners, please look out for Dr. Sarah Lance L A N T Z and her upcoming or forthcoming publications, and including Chemical Free Kids, her previous publication. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on FX Medicine. I really learned a lot. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I love being here. So thank you. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the new science of detoxification, advanced approaches to phase one, two, and three support. For more information, visit biocidicals.com.au slash education slash events.